Are you going to a funeral? Are you going to a funeral? That's the question the well-known 16th century pastor and theologian and reformer Martin Luther once asked his wife, Katharina or Kate. It was during one of Luther's dark bouts of depression. Yes, Christians, even pastors, get depressed. Luther was in a particularly dark place. Nothing and no one could help, not even his wife's encouragement or her counsel. And so one day, his wife Kate put on an all-black dress. When Luther noticed, he asked, are you going to a funeral? No, Kate replied. But since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. Luther got the point and soon recovered. There's something in that, isn't it? Life is hard, made more difficult often by our commitment to follow Jesus. And during trials, during attacks, during criticisms and opposition, externally and internally, we can tend to mourn. But Christians ought to look distinct in doing so. We, we can acknowledge the hardships and hurts of life, but with a certain buoyancy, a certain hope, a certain joy, not because life is all good, but because God lives and he is all good. We're called to live as if we believe that he lives, as if we believe that he loves and as if we believe that he cares for us. And the psalm we'll look at this morning helps us to do that. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 4? Psalm chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, if you have a Bible under your chair, we gave a lot of Bibles out yesterday, uh, you can find it on page 448. So Psalm chapter 4, you can find it on page 448 on the Bible under the chair. And if you are with us this morning and you do not have a Bible of your own that you can easily read, uh, feel free to take that Bible under the chair around you as our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. And as we're here this morning, as I'm preaching for the next few minutes, however you define few, you should take that Bible and keep it open so that what I'm saying matches what the Bible says. Right? And if I'm not saying what the Bible says, you should give me some kind of weird, confused look and talk to me afterwards. All right? We mean for the Bible to speak. All right? the, the best thing that we're going to do is read from God's Word, and the best sermon will be as it reflects and rightly represents God's Word. All right? So Psalm chapter 4, I'll read the entire uh, chapter and kind of what Adam said earlier about Bible study. That's kind of what we're going to do even now. We're not going to necessarily go every single verse. We're going to read the text. What does it say? We're going to explain it. What does it mean? And then apply it to our lives. So Psalm chapter four. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? 
but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we've been in, in book five of the Psalms over the last few weeks. Book five starts at, at Psalm 107 and goes on. This morning, we're going to cycle back to the beginning of, of, of the Psalms to, to book one. Again, the Psalms are broken up into five different books. This, this morning, we're going back to, to book one. Most of the Psalms in book one, if you would got to do a quick survey, are written by King David. 38 of the 41 books in book one are from his pen. I mean, you see that even here with this psalm in the superscription or the title up top, it reads a, a psalm of David. As we've said before, these psalms in, in book one seem to tell the story of the rise of God's anointed king, David, and right along with his rise, the rise of many enemies against him. And while we don't know the exact background behind this specific psalm, as we read it, we, we, we saw that there are people against the Lord's king, people against the Lord. And yet David shows us here something of how we should live. I mean, there are real oppositions, real enemies. But if God is real, and he is, then we ought to live a certain way by trusting in him. So, so here's what I think is the main idea of Psalm chapter four. The main idea of this sermon. In trials, trust that the living God is listening to the pleas of his people and working to sustain and satisfy them. All right, if you got a bulletin that's going to be on a sermon notes page. So you don't have to necessarily write word for word. But if you don't have a sermon page and you want to uh, record it, here it is again. In trials. In difficulties, in troubles, in trials, trust that the living God is listening to the pleas, the cries, the petitions of his people and working to sustain and satisfy them. Though times are dark for David, he doesn't act like God is dead. He believes God lives and is active and shows what we should do if God is real. I think we see in this song four actions that we should take if God lives, if God is real, if God is not dead, but alive and for us. And those four things will be the four points of the sermon. Number one, pray. We said in verse one, pray. Number two, repent. We said that in verses two and three. Number three, worship. And we see that in verses four and five. And fourthly, rejoice. We see that in verses six through eight. So number one, pray. Number two, repent. And number three, worship. Number four, rejoice. 
Number one, pray. Pray. No, notice in this passage, there are four addresses, four kind of groups David is talking to. In verse one, David talks to God. In verses two and three, David turns and talks to his enemies. In verses four and five, David seems to talk to those in Israel that are friendly to him or for him on his side. And in verses six through eight, he again talks to God. Where he starts off and where he ends is most important with the Lord in communion, in conversation with him, praying. And no matter what's going on in life or what folks are doing, our focus should first be on the Lord. Talk to him before you talk to men. David cries out, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And this is the life of faith. One that pursues God's face and God's favor, God's help. Now, many of us may, may stand back a bit here and question David's approach. I mean, he makes demands of God. Answer me. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. I mean, we in our piety want to soften that some. Make it more passive, less demanding. Lord, may you please answer me. If it be your will, would you be gracious to me? Isn't it interesting how we can often criticize how others pray rather than be confronted by how we don't pray? Uh, there's an intimacy here with God that David has. An intimacy that doesn't feel the need to dance around with delightful language. He's not trying to impress others or God by the language he uses to pray. No, he realizes he has direct access to God. And so he goes to the God of the universe and he simply prays. He talks to God like he knows him. He talks to God like God knows him. It's the difference between a friend of yours who comes over occasionally and politely addresses your parents with all these pleasantries when they see him. Hi, Mr. Silver, you know, he's dancing around, using all this kind of flowery language. Well, that's different than how you address your parents, isn't it? Right? You talk to them with a kind of familiarity that a friend doesn't have, that someone more distant doesn't have. There's a closeness that's assumed that, that begs of, that assumes their care and their concern and acts on it. Well, that's what David does here. I mean, this is the God of his righteousness. The God who declares him righteous no matter what everyone else is saying. God's word about me is what really matters. God has chosen to, to make me his own. God is my defense. I don't care what anyone else says. Not only has God declared David righteous in his sight, God has committed himself to do what is right for David and for his people. David calls out to this God, Often. For him, prayer seems to be a constant practice, a steady discipline. David prays until he gets answers. And David prays expecting God to answer. Answer me when I call, he demands. Be gracious and hear my prayer. But, but, but what drives this expectation? That God will hear. That God will answer. Well, it's the nature of God. David believes that God exists, that he lives, that he's active, and that he's powerful, and that he cares. 
Well, what does it say that? I mean, there's no formal statement of faith here by David. No ancient article about God, as we find in many of our statements of faith. Well, yes, there is. Only it's wrapped up in the practice of prayer. You see, you show what you really believe about God by your prayer life. You can have the most exquisite, biblically referenced, theologically sounding understanding of God. But the proof is in the prayer. Do you believe the God you talk so eloquently about? If so, do you talk to him like this? God is not a distant idea or a dormant deity to David. God is the almighty creator and sustainer who is ever present with his people. He can help in any kind of trouble and save from every kind of problem. And notice David's confidence in God and, and that God will answer his prayer is grounded upon God's past care. I mean, look there in the middle of verse one. David recounts a previous experience, perhaps multiple, many previous experiences where God, where David was in distress, where he cried out to God and God answered him. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And so now in present distress, David has confidence that God will act, that God will answer. As you have given me relief now, be gracious, or then be gracious to me now and hear my prayer. God hears. God answers. Do you believe that? What tempts you away from such faith? Maybe you think God hears, but don't believe he answers. I mean, none of the things you've prayed for have happened. Well, so you think. But could it be that God granted you the relief you prayed for, yet you failed to acknowledge it? I mean, in the midst of many gloomy days, of many battles with bad bosses or fights with fussy children or disagreements with spouses or friends. You pray daily for some relief. And if you were honest, there's been days over the past year, over the past week, where things have been slightly better. But have you dismissed those days? in favor of hanging on to this narrative that things are all bad all the time with no help and no hope. Do you pray and expect God to answer and then look for him to show up? Are you able to have your faith strengthened by saying with David, Lord, you gave me relief in distress and will help me now. I think this there's three ways we can be helped to, to do this, to have this kind of confidence in God that he hears and that he answers and being able to have that confidence bolstered by how God has answered prayers before. So three ways we can be helped. First, pray specifically. It's fine to pray, Lord, be with me today or Lord, help me today. But those broad prayers are hard to track. Better to narrow them down some. Lord, be with me today 
in this meeting with my coworker. You know his tendency to throw me under the bus, to exalt himself by pulling me down. Be with my tongue <laughs> that I wouldn't lash out in anger. Be with my mind that I wouldn't think upon uh, all the bad things that he does, but I would think upon good and noble things. That I'd remember that he, too, with all his annoying comments, is an image bearer, worthy of dignity and honor. Be with him. That you'd restrain him from finding his identity in work, or point him instead to his need for more, for you. You can pray those things and then go to your meeting and then walk out of that meeting where you kept your calm, where you didn't grow frustrated, where your coworker was even civil enough to, to be normal. <laughs> and you can say not, today was a better day than usual, but rather the Lord gave me relief. Pray specifically and look for the Lord to answer specifically. Second, pray scripturally. Pray scripturally. Link those specific prayers to specific verses of scripture. God loves his word and intends to honor it. You can know you're praying the right things when you pray from God's word. So take a passage of scripture and turn it into fuel for prayer. So earlier we, we read in the responsive reading in Matthew chapter 5. One of the verses, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pray from that specific verse, specific prayers for your purity in speech and in what you watch. Pray that, that God would guard your heart and eyes from finding happiness in looking at explicit sexual images and give you rather happiness in seeing him. And at the end of the day, give thanks to God that he kept you, that you were satisfied by looking at him as he shows himself in his word and by not looking at wasteful things on a screen. He gave me relief. Third, pray steadily, right? Pray steadily. So pray specifically, pray scripturally. Third, pray steadily. Now, one of the things we see here is that prayer is meant to be persistent. Perhaps we've had two high hopes that one prayer would deliver us from all distresses. And so when the next trial comes, we figure what's the use of praying? I prayed before for God to give me relief, and here's another trouble. But the Lord has never promised paradise in this life. If anything, he's promised problems. Thorns and thistles are part and parcel of life in a fallen world. And more distinct, more direct attacks are yours when you join with Christ against this fallen and sinful world. But as problems persist, so should prayer in greater and greater volumes, showing that you believe that God is greater than all your problems and bigger than all your enemies, that he's able and willing to help you. Now pray specifically, play, pray scripturally, pray steadily. But, but why would a righteous God hear your prayer? 
hear my prayer. Help us when we have been so unrighteous. Well, because of what he's done for us in his son. The sin that separated us from this holy, righteous God has been bridged by the blood of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us to bring us to God. He died for our sins and rose again to save us. And when we turn from our sins and trust in him for salvation, our sins are all forgiven and we are adopted into God's family. And again, what? One of the major things we do, we gain access to God as our father. I mean, David, this, this amazing confidence that David goes to the Lord with this bold, direct access is more readily ours through Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He told them to address God, not as some distant God who you got to be very formal with. He said, don't heap up empty phrases. Just say our father who art in heaven. We can approach his throne boldly as David does here. David was God's king who committed himself to God and whom God committed himself to. But he pointed to a future king, the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and established his reign by living a righteous life and conquering sin, dying for us and rising again, that he might be enthroned forever in our hearts as Lord. And we show that we believe that God lives and has done something for us and is still doing something for us. We show that we believe that by praying. So pray. Pray like you believe that God is real. Secondly, repent. If God is real and alive, what should we do? Number two, repent. Again, David's address here. Notice it in, in verse two. Uh, no longer is he directly addressing God as in verse one, but, but turns, as it were, to address those who are against him, his enemies. O men, he says in verse two, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? There are many in Israel against Israel's king. We talked about this a few weeks ago. They are against him specifically because he was God's anointed, God's king. And as people have always raged against God, they always rage against those who belong to God, who represent God. David, as God's king, deserves honor. But many are seeking to shame him to discredit him, to dethrone him. Who are they? Well, the list of candidates is, is vast. If this psalm is connected in setting to the previous psalm, it would include David's own son, Absalom, whom the heading in Psalm 3 tells us sought to, to run his father off the throne and kill him. And he wasn't alone. Many people rose up in opposition to David. Many spoke in contempt of him. And notice how David frames their actions as, as more serious than, than mere personal affronts. In, in, in their attempts to shame him, they display a love for sin. They love vain or empty words. They love lies. They were thinking and saying untrue things about David, doing whatever it took to bring him down. And David here pulls back the layers and exposes their actions for what it really is. Sin. How long will you love lies? 
is meant to, to serve as a, as a spike in the road to stop them in their race to ruin God's king. You know, sometimes we need to let people know the deeper significance and danger of their actions in order to wake them up. And people might say, I'm just ambitious and have a lot of drive. That's why I work long hours and I'm willing to do anything to get ahead. Or do you love money? I was just joking. Or I'm just telling it like it is about this person and their views. I'm just being real. Or rather, do you love lies? Do you love slander? You see, we don't need to try to smooth out sin. Everybody's already doing enough of that anyway. That's what's natural to us. We want to call what we're doing something other than what it really is. I'm just stretching the truth a bit. Exaggerating some. Being strategic. Playing the game. And no, you're lying. Scheming. Sinning. And you love it. And whenever you love sin, you reveal a hatred of God. You find yourself ultimately opposing him and his will. David wants his enemies to know this. I mean, look at verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. While they set themselves against David, speaking lies against him, they should know that they cannot win. It's God who set David apart. Who's installed him? God is on my side. And God will listen to me when I call, when I ask him for relief from my distress, which means that when he answers, it's good news for me, but bad news for you. Because in rescuing his king, he will wreck his enemies. This is a warning not to keep warring against God, against his people. A warning that should lead the wicked to stop their evil ways. Friends, that's what all the warnings in Scripture are meant to do. To lead us to repent. To turn from our sins and turn to God. So I wonder, have you done that? Have you repented? If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, have you considered the, the impact of your actions? Consider the magnitude of them. I mean, worse than speaking against and rejecting this earthly king, David, you've spoken against and denied the king from heaven, Jesus Christ. You've loved lies by not believing that he is who he said he was. The son of God who came to earth to save sinners. You've rejected the very one that God has set apart to save you, to make you godly. And God, as a good and a just God, will judge you for your ungodliness, for your rebellion. But that same good, just God is also kind to give you warnings and give you time to repent. Would you do so today? Would you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus?
But repentance isn't just a, a one-time act. Repentance is a constant need. So perhaps there's some sin in your life, even now as a Christian, that you need to repent of. That you've been calling something else. Something less than what it really is. Sin. Maybe it's a, a grumbling heart. Or a critical spirit. Or some open conflict. But if God sets apart the godly for himself and the godly include all those who trust in God's son, then what is that grumbling heart, that critical spirit, that open conflict you have against another member, against another brother and sister than sin against God himself? Sin that needs to be repented of. So would you repent of your sins today? Repentance is the right response of sinful beings before a holy and righteous God. But there's a third response, a third action that should mark our lives as we live before a living God. Worship. Number three, worship. And now you can scan this entire psalm and not see that word worship at all. You might have a hard time even finding the concept Maybe you see how I can get that word worship or this idea of worship from verse five, where David instructs the people to offer right sacrifices to God. Certainly that's a, a form of worship. But I think we need to more broadly have a view of worship. Uh, too often we've confined worship down to, to simply the, the service on Sunday mornings, the worship service. And even more narrow than that, we distill worship down to a specific segment in this Sunday morning service. The worship team leads songs during the worship sets. But biblically, worship is an all-of-life activity. As one author says, worship is our service to God. It is acting and thinking and speaking as if God really is who he says he is. And we really are who he says we are. In verses four and five, David seems to be addressing yet another group. Those in Israel who are his advocates, his supporters, they are pro-David. And so as they see how the king is treated, how others are speaking lies and seeking to shame and discredit him, seeking to dethrone him, they are angry, upset, ready to go on the defensive and fight back. That's probably the natural reaction that David had as well. But he calls them not to war, but to worship. Amen. Worship the Lord. Yes, offer right sacrifices to him, verse, verse 5. And, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. You see, worship is not merely what you come to do one day out of the week. Worship is also what you refrain from doing. Every other day of the week. You can come here on Sundays with mouths full of praise. But you are not worshiping God if your mouth has been full of curses all week long. You might come here with a heart full of joy on Sundays, but you're not worshiping God if all week you wreaked havoc on people in your home. Or at your job. Or online. I mean, that's one of the main things God kept condemning the people of Israel for in the writings of the prophets. 
One of the main things that Jesus kept condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for in the Gospels, they, they kept all the religious rituals. Uh, all of the things that God formally told them to do as far as worship routines, but their lives were rotten and full of sin. Their hearts were far from the Lord. Well, here David instructs the people, look, you, you might be angry at what's going on around you. Angry at the situation at hand that, that people are trying to tear me down. I'm angry too. But you have a far greater obligation than to defend my honor. A far greater duty than just to let your anger vent. No, you are required to worship the Lord. And part of worshiping him is honoring him with all your life. Is to live holy before him and refrain from sin. Be angry, but don't sin. Friends, I think it teaches us here that not all anger is sinful. There is a justified anger. An anger, for instance, against injustice, against something that is improper or ungodly. There's, there's an anger against what, what people here would have been witnessing. Foes who are trying to defy God's plans and dethrone God's king. It's right to be angry at wrong. It is right to be angry at wrong. But friends, even righteous anger can take a wrong turn when you lash out in your anger at others. When you decide, I'm mad and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to give somebody a piece of my mind. Somebody about to catch my wrath. And you feel justified in doing so. I mean, over the last couple of years, we've seen people rioting many streets in our country. People rioting at the U.S. Capitol because they were ticked off, fed up, and felt that their anger excused their actions of assaulting police and destroying property. How different is that than, than the instruction that David gives here? There are genuine reasons to be angry, but never a reason to sin. The former never validates the latter. So then how is it possible to be legitimately angry, yet refrain from sinning? We'll just keep on reading. That's, that's, that's generally how many of our questions are answered. By continuing to read the next section of the Bible. All right, so just keep reading the book. As you read here, you see the end of verse 4 and into verse 5 shows us what we are to do with our anger. Even justified anger. We're to commit it to the Lord. Ponder in your own beds and keep silent. Don't feel the need to lash out at enemies. Do what David has already modeled in verse 1. You keep on your bed, keep quiet, and pray to God for relief. Keep your lips closed to, to them and cry out to him. And keep fulfilling your covenant responsibilities. For the people of God then, go and offer right sacrifices. For the people of God now, come to church. In other words, don't worry about taking care of all the wrong, all the evil, all, all the things that are going on in the world. Avenging all the ungodly, avenging yourself from all the attackers. You put your trust in the Lord, take care of, for him to take care of what's wrong, and you come worship him. Amen. You let him work for you as you worship him. 
Thanks God. God will hold others responsible for, for their rebellion against him and his people. But God will also hold us responsible for how we respond. Some Christians allow their anger at some wrong to derail their walk with the Lord. To wreck their faith. They are so mad, so upset that they leave the church. Perhaps because of resentment of others in the church who, who they feel have done them dirty. Or they make it their personal mission to, to fight against those who wrong them. Make personal vendettas to punish any perceived slight. But you know, that ultimately destroys you more than them. Don't set your heart on warring against others. Worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your being. Trust in him. And very practically, what, what might this look like? Well, you might sit down and, and type out that angry email to a family member or a church member or a co-worker, letting them know how very mad you are at how they treated you or what they said. But you never send it. It sits in your drafts. And then you go back and delete it. And then you go click on your trash folder and permanently All right. All right. delete it. Not because you need to just suppress your anger, but because you need to express it to the right person. Not to them, but to the Lord. That he might deal with it in the right way. You trust that he knows better than you what to do when you've been wrong. You give your anger, you give everything over to him. That's worship. That's worship. Uh, fourth and lastly, what action should be ours in any circumstance as we live before the Lord? Number four, we should rejoice. Number four, rejoice. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Circumstances can sour our outlook on life to the point where we grow despondent and despairing. I was in a barbershop the other day, and one of the barbers was, was going on and on and on, uh, talking about how it's just one storm after another, one storm after another, and there's no hope, no sunny days. My life is in despair, was his sentiment. Perhaps you're there this morning, stuck in a pit of despondency, of discouragement. That's where some in Israel were. As they looked at David's plight, I mean, the welfare of a nation is often tied to the security and success of its leader, of its king. And especially here, this is supposed to be God's king. Seeing his life full of enemies. Seeing his life on the run. Seeing his life near ruins doesn't garner much encouragement for the people. Doesn't, doesn't give them much hope for the fate of the country. Doesn't grow their faith in God, but rather causes them to despair a little bit. That's where David was tempted to be. Where we all are when, when troubles come. Taking hit after hit after hit. All rain, no sunshine, it feels like. I mean, just look at all the, the news headlines, all the events in your own life this past week or the past few months. Perhaps you can relate to the mindset that David says many have in verse 6. There are many who say in verse 6, 
who will show us some good? I mean, especially when all you see is bad. Death and disease and danger and debt. Where will good come from? Who will show us some good? Our hearts are tempted to ask such questions amid despair. And to go looking for the answer in the wrong places. We try to find it in other people. Life will be good, will be better with a spouse to cure my loneliness. To satisfy my unfulfilled sexual desires. Or the doctor will show me some good. Give good news that the treatments work and that the disease is permanently gone. Or that the procedure worked and I'm finally able to, to have children. We pray the, uh, play the lottery. I think Pastor Zach mentioned this last week. If I hit that jackpot, over a billion, I don't care what nobody else says, life will be good. No worries about utility bills or rent or mortgage or college. Everything will be taken care of. But notice where David points miserable people to, terrified people to, pitiful people to. Notice where David points them to to find some good. To God. Lord, people are looking for some hope, for some happiness. So the end of verse 6, lift up the light of your face on us, O Lord, and shine on us. Lord, show us more of you, more of your character, more of your glory, more of your goodness. Show your favor and satisfy your people. Now, maybe your heart just sank a little bit. Or maybe it just balled up like a, like a hard fist. Because it sounds like just another tired, old, rehearsed Bible answer from some old tired, old Bible preacher who does not understand all the problems going on in your life, all the pain and discouragements that you face, and who just throws out God as the answer to everything. Friends, it's true that sometimes pastors can sloppily dismiss people's feelings, people's circumstances, Sometimes pastors, even me, oftentimes can be unlistening and unloving and throw out God as the magic bullet to all of life's problems. But probably truer is our tendency to dismiss God as the answer to all of life's problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah God is fine. A little faith is fine. But, but let's be real. I need something more, something else to make me happy. To truly cheer me up. Well, friends, the Bible is meant to meet us in real life. Where we really are in the midst of real dangers and real problems and point us to a real hope. What you really need, who you really need to show you some good is God. Amen. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. This is ultimately his word written through his servant, David. David prays that God would show his people some good. And for David, this is not just a throwaway phrase. This is not mere Bible talk. For David, this is a lived reality of what God can do and of what God will do. I mean, if you want to talk about people with problems, people that have gone through some stuff, look no further than David. His life was harassed by a lunatic. Saul was a madman trying to constantly murder David. David 
committed horrible sin by sleeping with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And then he got her husband killed. And from that uh, overnight, one night stand with Bathsheba, he got her pregnant. God's judgment for that sin was that he would take that baby away. David watched and mourned as his newborn son died. David lived to see the horror of one of his other sons, Amnon, rape his own daughter. And then he saw another son, Absalom, who we referenced earlier, plot against him to kill him and to take the throne away. I mean, talk about someone who should be in the mental institution, who should be discouraged, who should constantly be despairing, who should have left God a long time ago and moved on to something or someone else to find some happiness. Yet it's this same David with all these problems, with all these pains, saying in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when all their grain and their wine abound. Then all my enemies, all my pursuers, all those against me, they got some, some, some joy, but it's tied to wine and grain. You put more joy in my heart. Things are going well for, for everyone else. They're living it up. Filled with food and wine, with plenty of finances. They're living securely with no worries. They have joy. But I have more. Because God gives more. Amen. Friends, that's a good little three-word summary of life. You know, might need to meditate on this week. God gives more. Amen. There's no need denying that, that, that some things in life bring you joy. Babies bring joy. Marriages bring joy. Riches and sex and status bring joy. But God gives more. Because if your joy relies on those other things, it's always dependent on something external. On the economy being up. On your spouse acting right. Or some other variable, extreme variable. But David speaks here of an internal joy that God gives that's not dependent on anything unshaky, but that is dependent upon him who is the solid rock, Joe. David says, you put more joy in my heart. There's a God-given joy that's not produced by anything on the outside and that perseveres through anything pressing in from the outside. It's the joy of knowing God and being in close fellowship with him. The joy that lasts forever. David knew that joy. The king that David pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, knew that joy. Even on the cross, as everyone left him, as everyone mocked him, as all his attackers were against him, as his body was badly beaten, right? he suffered immensely as, as he was inches away from death. The scriptures say that there was joy in his heart. For the joy that was set before, he was joyful because he was about to go back to close fellowship with his heavenly father. That's the real joy you and I can have today in Christ. The joy of knowing that we are God's and he is ours. That he has committed his love upon us in Christ. A joy that knows that though there are many outside enemies against us, God is not one of them. Amen. He has removed his wrath far from us. 
He's judged our sins in his son, Jesus Christ. He set us apart in him to be his children. And he has given us his spirit to live in us. His spirit that is constantly welling up in us like a spring of everlasting, never ending joy. A joy that will one day be consummated when King Jesus returns and calls us home. It seems this wasn't necessarily planned, the last week's sermon and then this, this week's, but it seems like with the message of the preacher in Ecclesiastes and, and David this week, the Lord is meaning to wake us up to the, to the futility of all that life has to offer and, and to the reality of the true joy that's found in him alone. That joy that brings peace in all of life's problems. And David ends in verse 8 saying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And when you're happy in the Lord, you can have rest even with all the havoc in the world. In your home. In your heart. Because there's joy in Jesus. Because God lives for you and God lives in you. And so in the midst of trials, we can trust that he is listening to our pleas and is constantly working to sustain us through all dangers and to satisfy us with the deep joy that he gives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that meets us in discouragement, your word that counters our own counterfeit joys and hopes, our own counterfeit assumptions. Lord, we pray that you would grant us a deep, abounding joy in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to meditate that you give more than all the world has to offer, and that we, we would encourage one another with those words. We pray this in Christ's name, who loved us and who gave himself for us. Amen.